0: I want to say a special thank you to Bob Schieffer, who's been you know, consistently for 15 years, been doing this. It's just wonderful. Uh, of course, we do this jointly with TCU. And, and Bob is the Loyalist alum for TCU, he's got his purple socks, eh? yeah, he's got a purple sock. We don't have color socks, at CSIS, so otherwise he would wear those. Uh, but he's a, he's a champion for TCU and a wonderful friend. I wanna say a special thank you to, to the three panelists tonight. All of them are uh, active at this new commission that we've launched on trade policy, and we're going to explore some of that with you tonight. And I would like to say a special thanks to the stavros Niarcos Foundation. They make it possible for us to have this thing, for all of you, because this is a set of issues that needs to be brought in wider circulation to the American people. And today we're going to have a wonderful opportunity. Bob, let me turn it to you and
1: thank you. Thank you. glad to have you here. Henry, uh, uh, this is a big day because this is the day that uh, CSIS has convened this Commission on Trade Policy. Uh, they're hoping to work out some sort of positive trade agenda. Uh, maybe have that done by, uh, by the fall. And we are fortunate to have the three chairs of that commission with us today. You'll find their detailed resumes. I think you probably know most of them. If you've come today, you will certainly know who they are. Ambassador Charlene uh, uh she was the U.S. trade rep uh, during the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Former Senator Bill Brock, uh, right there. Uh, He's a Republican of Tennessee. He served in President Reagan's uh, cabinet as both trade representative and labor secretary. And down at the end, Fred Smith, the the founder and CEO of FedEx. So how could you get three more qualified people than that to talk about trade? And I I don't want to miss the lead here, so The Commission met today for the first time. uh, Senator Brock, uh, when are you going to have some
2: news for us (laughs) what happened? Weren't you there? (laughs) You you missed the story. I think uh, our our present agenda calls for us to meet in January, again in March. We've got teams here at CSIS working throughout the, the next several months. And my hope is, and I think we would agree, that we're gonna get mid to late spring for, I really want this group, it's really a good commission. I'd love to have the opinions expressed by Fred Smith on our behalf to have an impact on the conversation in the presidential election. We need to talk about trade in this country and we don't do enough of it. So that's my hope.
1: Very good, the thing I wanna, stressed today, and it just sort of occurred to me as I was trying to prepare myself for this discussion, we're going to talk about trade today, but what we're really talking about is what is America's place in the world and what do we wish it to be. Under the uh, firm guidance of the United States in the decades since World War II, new alliances and trade agreements emerged which produced prosperity the flourishing of global commerce, and the avoidance of nuclear war. But now, some people are beginning to worry that maybe the price of leadership was too high, that we were being played for a sucker by others in the world, that maybe we should step back. As a result, as Alex uh, Pascal wrote in The Atlantic, instead of working to find new alliances, National policy has been to disengage, notably from the Climate Accord, the Iran nuclear deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we have defunded the UN and paralyzed the World Trade Organization, as well as questioning NATO's core commitment to mutual defense, not to mention the trade war in which we now find ourselves uh, with China. So let me just start by asking each of our our panelists here today, is what we are seeing telling us that the United States is retreating from our traditional role, not just in trade, but in other areas as well, or is this a different state in which we now find ourselves?
3: I think it's a combination of both. So I think with respect to the overall environment, you've had a number of issues that have been sitting there for a long time, pre this administration, uh, unaddressed. So the pace of globalization and global integration, which has been very, very fast. The reemergence of China, which has structurally changed the global economy. And of course, China uh, has become a more state-led economy uh, than we thought it might be at one point. Uh, Those two factors have intensified competition, and while competition became more intense, the U.S. had its global financial meltdown, which spread around the world. So as competitors got stronger, the United States got weaker. And then what you saw was an acceleration of the disruption of uh, classic industries in the United States. Manufacturing jobs have been declining since 1950, largely because of productivity, but you see an acceleration uh, during and then after the financial crisis because the recovery took so long. So all of these kinds of pressures, and now of course nationalism, uh, have really created an environment in the United States where simple slogans, we've been cheated, which is untrue by the way, uh, and uh, simple answers, let's put tariffs on everybody, which by the way is a tax on the United States, companies and United States, consumers paid by the United States, uh, take the place of thoughtful policy analysis. As you said, Bob, we have to decide what is our position in the world? What do we aspire to be? What are the rules in which we want to operate as a country? What is the environment that can be created that's most conducive to American and global interests? Uh, We're we're tearing down a lot of things, walking away from any one of a number of things, as you've pointed out, big things, with no substitute, with no strategy, with no articulated conception of where it is the United States should be and to whom are we answerable. Uh, And this is extremely dangerous for U.S. prosperity, for our security, uh, and for the kind of um, country uh, I think in which we all want to live,
1: Senator Brock, uh, just to add on to that, how would you describe our policy? What is American policy toward trade?
2: I don't have the foggiest idea, <laughs> uh, and I don't think anybody else does in Washington. Uh, I don't think there's any strategy. I don't think there's any larger purpose. Uh, I think we've responded to the events that are causing governments around the world to take a look at, at who they are and what they're trying to achieve. It's a radically different world, technology, China. Uh, we now have su- su- supply chains that Fred Smith probably uh, does more for than anybody else. The companies that are producing, in the United States probably producing, uh, 40% of their of their materials in the United States, they're coming out of Canada, they're coming out of China, they're coming out of Brazil, they're coming out of China. And if you think we're paying too much for American leadership, try doing without it. Four billion people have come out of poverty in the 70 or 80 decades since we started building the, the World Organization with our leadership that says there is a purpose to do business with other countries, and that purpose is to advantage everybody and give everybody opportunity. One out of five Americans is in a job that is dependent upon international trade. Tell them we don't need to worry about trade policy. But we don't ever tell them. We haven't talked about trade as if it were something fundamentally important to every American. And I think maybe that's something that we can do here. I hope we affect the national elections next year because the people on this commission are really good and they're really smart and we got a heck of a chairman.
1: <laughs> if we do step back, uh, Fred, what are the consequences of that?
0: Well, I think the, the consequences uh, could be uh, quite dire because uh, since the Roosevelt administration, uh, as we were talking about upstairs uh, before we came out here, it's been U.S. policy to engage with the world in, in trade, and uh, Roosevelt adopted that position because the Smoot-Hawley tariffs of 1930 had been an enormous contributor to the to the beggar-thy-neighbor economic meltdown that the world experienced during the 1930s, the, the Great Depression. So when we came out of the the war, we were more than 50% of the total world GDP. We were the arsenal of democracy and we and the Allies decided we needed a rules-based system and on that basis we opened and liberalized markets. A lot of times I think we made geopolitical trade-offs particularly as it applied to Germany and Japan, our former uh, enemies. We wanted an unsinkable Aircraft carrier in the Pacific. We wanted a bulwark against the the uh, the Soviet Union, uh, but in the main, as as uh, has been mentioned here, billions of people, because markets have been opened, uh, have come out of poverty. Most recently, hundreds and hundreds of millions out of uh, poverty in in China. But I think two things have have happened here. The the first and most important probably, is the rise of China. And uh, China is unprecedented, a country of that size that that has prospered to the degree it has in such a short period of time, uses market-based principles but authoritarian government. And then secondarily, the the rise of populist governments, particularly in the United States, which uh, exploits, if you will, I don't mean this in a negative, fashion, but certainly to a great journalist like Bob, you'll understand what I'm I'm saying. The benefits of trade are diffuse. We all uh, save uh, per family in the United States about $12,000 a year because of the benefits of trade. But if you're the factory worker uh, that loses their job because we've opened up markets, it doesn't feel like that $12,000 benefit is particularly useful for you. So that's become a central feature of both the the U.S. administration and and Europe. It's a key part of the Brexit debate. Uh, Immigration and and trade are basically the two issues there. So we have something that we all know historically has been of enormous benefit to the world that has been led, if you will, by the United States with with the traditional allies that we had from World War II that's now abandoned that premise. And so that's half of the problem, and then you have a, a Chinese government that's big enough and has views of its role in the world which makes it uh, not willing to accept the rules-based system that was put in place after the World War II. So it's
1: those two fundamental things that are creating the angst that we have today. Let me let me ask you about that. Are we approaching China in the right way? Because we're talking about they're a state-based economy if the chinese leadership sees a problem out there they get some money together and they go to a company and say solve this problem we are a free enterprise-based economy uh can our system operate and compete with that system what would you say charlotte
3: i'd say that you have two systems that are very different i think martin wolf The Financial Times coined a phrase, one world, two systems. The question is how stable is that, right? Duopolies can be stable, but aren't always stable. Uh, And so, for the United States, you first have to ask yourself, what makes the United States the strongest possible country? It means a strong domestic economy, it means a strong security footprint, it means strong alliances, strong projection of power, through these various means, uh, and a population that is rowing in the same direction, economically, as well as with respect uh, to at least core values of uh, free speech and so on. Uh, That's the first question, regardless of China. Put China to a side, right? First things first. You add China in, and the question is, since you have this alternative system in operation, how do you change that? which is what you're asking, how do you change that? And it seems to me that changing it in the way we're trying to, by bludgeoning China, since we're paying the tax we imposed on China, is a stop or I'll shoot myself (laughs) policy, which makes no sense whatsoever. Instead, in my view, we should go back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which puts us in partnership with the growth region of the world, that is to say Asia. We should fix it if it needs to be fixed, amend it, change it, whatever. But take that agreement, which puts us in the center of global prosperity, take it to Europe, add Europe to it. Now you've got 60% of global GDP and a system that is strengthened regardless of China, but a system that China can join if in fact it'll play by those rules. And if not, they're
2: out. Uh, Go ahead, Senator Brock. We are really good in this country in in examining our collective naval. (laughs) We are the strongest, healthiest, best country in the history of mankind. There's never been anything like us we are a unique people. We have a unique system. And what we have achieved is beyond calculation. If our grandparents had seen what we're done now, they would have said that can't be done. We're the most innovative. We're the most creative. We're the biggest manufacturers in the world. Now, everybody thinks about China, baloney. They're slipping down. We're eating everybody's lunch right now. Quit apologizing. We're acting like it's, it's going to be healthy to contain China. That's like putting a fence around them. I don't, want to, I don't care about that. We let them out of the World Trade Organization because we need a, a world of rules, rule-based system that allows everybody to compete on, the, on a fair basis and have a place where you can settle disputes. We let China in, and they made all these commitments, and they didn't do any of it. They broke their word. And we're sitting there, how? What is wrong with us? Kick their can out if you don't wanna be part of the system. Then let them see how much fun it is to operate without a rule system. You can't do that without some allies, and you can't keep kicking your allies in the shins. Uh, You gotta get them involved. If you get Europe, and the BRICS, and Japan, and South Korea, and say, this is the WTO, If you play by the rules, you can be part of it. If you don't, you don't. And then let's see who wins. But quit apologizing for us. We are incredibly blessed as a people. We've got good people, and they're not afraid of hard work here. They'll take them on. Open the door and let it happen.
1: Uh, Fred, was it, I'll just ask you flatly, was it a mistake to pull out of the TPP? Yes, yes. I, I feel very strongly that
0: uh, as Ambassador uh, Marshevsky just said a moment ago that pulling out a TPP was a, a major error. I've, I've expressed that to any and everyone that would listen to me at the highest levels of the American government and given speeches about it. And I think in the same vein particularly with the relationship that we historically have with Europe. Uh, at the same time we walked away from TPP, we walked away from, uh, there's so many acronyms, TTIP, I think it was, the, T-tip. T-tip. the European uh, relationship. And as the ambassador said, if you, if you take the 11 other countries of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, the EU, or the EU and, and Great Britain, now you have an economic mass and a, a, the size economy that matches up against uh, China, and I think that that the current administration's view has, has three things that are very different than anybody else. First, deficits or losses, and you know when you buy something, say a imported automobile, you still have it in the garage. It's it's, but but that politically is the is the mantra. Second, that trade. Uh, with, at least with the United States, has to be bilateral in nature. And this very day, they announced the new Japan agreement, which is the administration's substitute, if you will, for the for the for the TPP. And those two premises are, you know, extraordinarily different than all of the things that these two worked on. And I think at the at the end of the day when you have such a fundamental disagreement on those two issues, and then there's a third, and that's the view that the United States consumer is a market to be protected. In fact, yeah. the President's advisor, Jared Kushner, when they signed the USMCA, the replacement for NAFTA, I watched him being interviewed. and. He said he thought one of the most important aspects of the, of the deal was the five-year renewal provision, because at the end of that five years, it gave us the opportunity to, in essence, see if we would license Canada and Mexico. I, I'm paraphrasing his words, but, uh, but the view was it's, it's our consumer market that's the, the jewel. And of course, that's been true for the last 75 years, and it remains true that we're doing well versus everybody else but if that's true think what the world will look like when China's consumers because then they will be able to license the rest of the world to to deal with them and so that's really the question is what what's the world on a go-forward basis with China who is mercantilist in nature and authoritarian and uh, you know China's a great country they can do what what they want but what we need to do is to convince that china uh, th- convince china that the system that made them rich remains the best system a rules-based multilateral system i think that's the challenge but that's not what many of the countries of the
1: world including this one at the current moment believe so well ambassador what is the right approach to china right now How- How do we get them to coexist with us? How do we prove to them it's good for everybody if you can work out some rules uh, and so forth?
3: I think China is uh, on its own path in many respects. You know, for a country that operates in an opaque fashion, they publish a whole bunch of stuff. They have their five-year plans, and their science plans, and their tech plans, and we can go back to 2002 and start tracing the origins of a lot of what has come to fruition today with respect to technology, with respect to intellectual property, uh, with respect to uh, various elements of their economy that they are subsidizing heavily. None of this is actually surprising. What has been surprising is the United States and Europe watching this train move down the track, sort of lumbering along and doing not too much about it. We substituted dialogues for results uh, and promises for outcomes, specific outcomes. And this has left us really behind the eight ball. So, to my mind, the approach to China is always, of course, engage with China. This is a fifth of the world's population. Uh, And uh, uh, it it, it is the world's oldest civilization. Uh, and until roughly 600 years ago, which for them is a blink of an eye, was the world's most innovative country. And they will be again. This is a really smart population and it's huge. So you engage with China, you try and persuade them, you make the arguments, you try and come up with alternative arrangements, but at the same time, you fortify the system in which you believe. And this country has always believed in a rules-based, market-based, system, fair play, transparency. You strengthen that, WTO reform, other (coughs) forms of agreements like TPP, working with our allies and so on, so that the counterweight to this more mercantilist China is very hefty, extremely hefty, protecting our own interests, regardless of what China does, regardless. We can't control China. We couldn't bring democracy to Cuba, which is a pinprick on the map 90 miles off our, uh, off our border. So we can't control what China does, but we can control what we do. And we can uh, activate sort of those impulses, I think, in the American people uh, to reinvigorate our own economy, our own innovation engine, our infrastructure engine, Uh, our education engine, none of which we've been doing, by the way, uh, Mm. in terms of changes of policy, and really be able to meet this other challenge uh, very effectively, I think. So you try and work with China, but you also fortify yourself and your alliances.
1: Senator Brock, you're the politician here, and I say that with great respect because you were a
2: good one. I, I deny. I don't want to be associated (laughs) with
1: it. Sometimes I get
2: the same feeling about journalism. (laughs) Well, you're at eight and I'm at nine.
1: (laughs) I want to ask you this, though. How is it, as we're sitting here talking about the Trans Pacific Partnership, what caused us to pull out of it? I mean, and what caused Hillary Clinton, who had a part in putting it together, to come out against it in the presidential campaign, eventually, how did we get to there?
2: Um, I haven't got time to give you the kind of an answer that I'd like to, because it takes, it, there are so many factors. But what was happening in this country is happening in a lot of other countries, starting with, you know, with England, but it's also true in Italy and, and, and a great number of the world's countries. The world has changed so dramatically that governments have pretty much lost touch with their fundamental responsibilities. So when you talk to the American people, how many, them, how many of them are going to say, hey, I'm fed up with all of them, press, Republican, Democrat, I'm up to here because nobody's listening to me. Well, the fact is they're not. Governments are having a real trouble connecting with the people who are supposed to reflect. Because we simply have lost touch with what's happening to that individual that you're talking about. And we we talk about the larger terms. We have got to back off and say, there is something fundamentally important about a trading system that allows any business to have some predictability about its investments if you as a business person don't know what's gonna happen to the rules, you're not gonna take the risk of making that investment. So the rule system that we have not talked about with the American people is at risk because we haven't enforced the rules that we set up, particularly with China. But to, 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 I guess the thing that worries me is that we're awfully good at finding somebody to blame and we're not real good at looking ourselves. We have not done an adequate job of educating our children. We have not done close to an adequate job of developing our skill base. We have done anything less, they've done nothing about our infrastructure. We've got a financial system that is totally out of control. You can't keep uh, funding this country with these deficits without destroying our currency and its value and affecting every American. Start with the fundamentals, get back to that, and then you can talk about what was important with the TPP. The reason we pulled out of TPP and, and the Brits have pulled out of Brexit, because people don't trust what is. You, you can say, well, every, every agreement we ever did is a bad agreement with WTO or, or TPP. The fact is, we have not talked about it. the value that we have created with 75 years, Fred. Of constructing a trading system that works. Let's talk about it. These kids today think that uh, everything happened yesterday and it didn't. We've been building this for a long time and you walk walk away from it at our risk and that's scary.
1: Fred, what's going to happen on the tariff front? Are are there going to be agreements worked out? Are there not? Will this just go on for years and there'll just be a general uncertainty? Where do you think, where we are today, what's gonna happen tomorrow?
0: Well, I like most things, Bob, in life there are not a multitude of choices. I think there are only a few in games here in terms of our relationship with, with China. And as I hope I made clear, I don't agree with US trade policy, I don't agree with China's either, because neither one of these policies follow the rules-based system that's made the world rich. They're they're putting this at risk. Yeah. So if you have followed um, President Xi Jinping's view of China's role in the world, China Dream, Indigenous Innovation, China 2025, Belt and Road, uh, their version of the uh, World Bank, and so forth, uh, he and and the Communist Party, uh, which which rules China, has a very different view of China's place in the world, and and I do not think that they are going to follow the rules-based system that was put together by the United States and the Allies after the war. So you've only got three options. One, Hank Paulson talked about it on this very stage when this commission was announced last summer, you'll go into a new Cold War. There'll be a Chinese sphere of influence. You'll have Huawei, 5G, in Angola, and you, you have to choose one or the other. The second would be that China comes to a different point of view and decides to re-engage in the rules-based system, which as I said, at least for the short term, I think is unlikely. But if we were to go back into TPP and with the Europeans, I think that prospect is possible because I don't think the Chinese are any better at running state-owned enterprises than the Russians were. I mean, there are only two kinds of economic systems, state-directed and market-driven. So theirs is moving increasingly towards state-driven, including putting communist cadres in the management of Alibaba and things of that nature. So if we would just stick to our knitting and the principles that we have done, I think at the end of the day, they might change their point of view and then the third I think is um, is is an agreement where you divide the relationship the commercial relationship into three parts commodities we sell you soybeans LNG middle things are non controversial products clothing TVs whatever the case may be and then up at the top are these dual use technologies and thing and there we have a very formal Relationship where the engagement between the two parties is uh, very restricted and heavily managed by the approval process and so forth. So I think that that's probably in the near term the more likely outcome, but even to get to that point, it seems to me we need to reengage with our allies just to face off against the their point. consumer base of a billion four hundred million people, because again, and I didn't mean this in a derogatory way, if you really view our consumer as the crown jewel and we sort of license you to to trade with us to get to that, if that is is <laughs> the case, and they're moving rapidly towards a consumer base rather than a, an industrial or a manufacturing base, then then when they become the only place that you can sell something their power becomes immense and the final thing i would say is the the trade wars began in march of 2018 when the president tweeted famously trade wars are good and easy to win now i don't know that the exact term there but those are the those were the exact words he may have the, an
1: exclusive on that he
0: may as but, say, but but in any case so from that point forward began this series of events of the tariffs and the negotiations which are taking place in this city on Thursday and, and, and Friday of this week. But what I don't think was realized that when you fire tariffs against China, if those are the bullets you're going to use in your trade war, it's the ricochets that hit Europe and that is what has brought Europe to its knees with the worst numbers in Germany announced just this morning in 10 years right. so so this is a beggar-thy-neighbor policy which is going to cause a significant slowdown in in worldwide GDP growth rate it, it, it began last year in the fall and it's continuing and if you look at these PMI numbers they are very concerning.
1: all right we want to go to your questions but while you're thinking of them I'm going to ask a final question So, what do we do about Huawei? And whoever decides to answer that will begin by telling us what Huawei is.
3: (laughs) (laughs) He's looking at me. (laughs)
1: Huawei
3: is China's uh, state-owned company. It's a national champion company built by the Chinese. Uh, It is a network equipment company, largely, but all facets of network architecture, communications networks and technology networks, all facets of the architecture from soup to nuts, from hardware to software, all the way through 5G and ultimately beyond 5G. It 5G meaning? Uh, 5G, meaning the fifth generation of mobile telecom communications. It's a particular architecture of communications, uh, largely revolving around speed, uh, but other things as well. Uh, and so this is a ferocious competitor. It's a, it's a very good company, but it because it is largely state-supported and state-directed. It doesn't actually need to make money or too much money. Uh, The point for Huawei is market share, not cash. Uh, And this creates uh, an untenable situation for American equipment providers in competition against Huawei. American companies typically have to show financial uh, rewards Uh, at the end of the day, but that's not the Huawei game. So what you do is very complicated. Uh, The U.S. has taken the position Huawei is a security threat. Uh, This is not new, by the way. Many administrations in the past have had the same series of concerns about Huawei. Tell us
1: a little bit about why that is so.
3: Because uh, Huawei installs your network equipment, and you can run checks on that as it's installed. You can determine it's clean, there are no back doors, there's no way to intercept messages, there's no way to get involved and to pull apart your network. The problem is, of course, networks have to be serviced. And so it is so simple, uh, not scientifically, but conceptually, easy to just do something in the course of servicing or updating a network remotely that changes things, changes the security profile of what was just installed. So that's really the biggest a sort of series of concerns. And
1: what you're saying here is that so you become involved in that, they can find a back door into exactly. your...
3: They can create a back door into your uh, networks, and of course those networks pervade the entirety of your commercial space, but you see they also pervade your military sphere as well. Uh, and so much of the, today's technology, including technology supplied by Huawei, is considered dual use. You can use it for commercial civilian purposes, but you could also use it in the same or different configuration for military purposes. And the question then is, well, what do you do with Huawei and with American companies that have this dual use capability? Uh, And so this has to be managed carefully and balanced carefully, which is to say, the commercial side of these businesses versus the security side. And oftentimes, it's a very delicate balance but I think you can't bludgeon these companies to death. They're not going to die that way.
1: I would just say as a civilian looking at this I think this is the hardest problem right now that. that U.S. policymakers um, face. I Could I make a comment on this, Bob? Yes.
0: Well, this is obviously of concern to us because some of you may know FedEx talking about ricochet bullets has been yeah. hit with oh, yeah. a couple of ricochet bullets because of the United States policy against, against Huawei. First thing you should know is there is no direct American competitor with Huawei in their routers. they are only European competitors and there's only two of those. Second thing is I personally believe that our policy against Huawei is not well founded and that the people that had the best approach to Huawei's technology and position in the world were the British. So what the British did was to set up a joint uh, unit with the British intelligence services and Huawei that they certified all of the equipment that Huawei wanted to sell in the, in the, in the, in the UK, which seems to me to be a perfectly reasonable uh, suggestion. And then more recently, the founder of Huawei has made an offer which hasn't gotten very much publicity in this country at all. He's offered to license the Huawei technology to Western companies. We'll take him up on it. So I I just think that this this um, uh, specter of Huawei being this uh, you know, commercial state-sponsored NSA is not borne out by the reality of the type of technology that they're actually selling. So I think we should would figure out a way to let Huawei sell routers to whoever they wanted to, including the people in Montana and Texas and Arizona, where they've actually proved a big benefit to American consumers because they make low-cost communications for these um, less sophisticated uh, infrastructure in those parts of the of the country. So the the, the intelligence folks they always want to put controls on all kinds of things. But I think the policy that I just suggested would be much more conducive to a better relationship with with China and the security risk, quite frankly, if you did those things that I just mentioned, have a joint overview of their technology or, you know, take them up on it and license their technology, then you've got basically a view of everything they're doing. So that would be my suggestion.
2: All right, if, uh, uh, No, before you go. Oh, okay. If, if Fred Smith were doing our negotiation, I'd say, hallelujah, we're on, we're on track. <laughs> He's not. And the people in this country that are in serious positions of leadership, whether it's in intelligence or military or our major companies, they're scared to death of this stuff. They are. They really do worry that the Huawei system can get embedded and have a backdoor that they can access technology that is crazy available to them. And, you know, we do the we do the innovation work and they can steal it at virtually no cost. That's the fear. And and, and we're not thinking about how to how there's an, a better way to do business. Fred it may be the best way. But what we're doing now is absolutely nothing. We'll try to ban them in this particular area, do something else like it. We're not changing anything. We're not addressing a really fundamental problem. Technology is being ripped off to the extent that we heard today in the commission, 500 billion, with a B, billion dollars a year by China. That's a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. All right, let's start. Well,
1: here's the man on the front row right here we love questions.
3: Uh, my name is Kami Bhattam with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question to Senator Brock. Uh, I used to work with uh, Miss Sandy Brock and Julie Brock, your daughter, during uh, Bush 2 campaign. So it's nice to see you here. So my question is about America's place uh, in in international arena, uh, international trade versus human rights. And it means that. We are, what my question is about we are totally ignoring what's happening in Kashmir uh, because we have a larger volume of trade with India compared to Pakistan. So is international trade that important that we can forget about our place as a champion of human rights uh, in, uh, in, in American, uh, uh, you know, the political arena? Thank you very much.
2: Of course. Of course. Yeah, I, I said it at the outset. American leadership, the crafting of a system, the IMF, the BIS, the the World Bank, the uh, UN, the uh, the elimination of the GATT, moving to the WTO, has so energized the world global trading system. We've taken 4 billion, billion people out of poverty. Those are 4 billion customers of ours. For God's sakes, they're not all in China. How long do you, is it going to take for person to talk about India? More people, more opportunity. A really good country that has the same ethical standards, political objectives that we do. So of course you need to work that way.
1: Do we have a woman who would like to, here's a lady back here.
3: Hello, uh, Sandra Sham, Catholic University. And um, I wanted to ask about international development because China has now for some time been a donor country in international development, but they have a unique approach that is different from other international development actors in that uh, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, seems geared towards um, increasing Chinese markets as well as uh, increasing trade and other things. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but um, I was wondering what the panel, members of the panel, thought of uh, their involvement in international development and what effects it might have on trade in the future.
1: would like to talk about that.
3: I might just say, CSIS uh, put out a terrific report uh, not very long ago uh, uh, on uh, the global build out of infrastructure, which isn't just Belt and Road, there's a whole global build out uh, going on now, uh, to the tune of tens of trillions, trillions T of dollars. Um, uh, and this report goes through many features of that global build-out, uh, much of which the United States is unfortunately not participating in. Uh, and we do also go through Belt and Road. Uh, and one of the points, and I would, so I would commend this report to your attention, uh, but one of the points it's uh, made uh, is that the United States ought to be looking, particularly at Belt and Road countries, because they're largely on the Eurasian landmass, Looking at those countries, determining which are important to the United States, either economically or strategically or for other reasons, Uh, determine whether the US and Western countries can offer an alternative to the build out being suggested by China. And one might want an alternative because Western methods of finance are transparent, they're not opaque, uh, and because Uh, Westerners tend to hire locals to do the work rather than bringing in wholesale your own workforce to take the jobs away from locals. Um, uh, uh, but But to take a look at what is strategically important since the U.S. has limited funding and decide what are the areas that we think is fabulous for China to develop because countries need development and we should always support that. And what are the areas that we believe we don't want China to control globally? 5G networks might be one such area. Energy might be another such area. So you pick a few narrow areas where the US has strong competitive and comparative advantages. You pick critical countries. Can't can't have everybody. Pick just the critical countries. uh, And work with them uh, to come up with alternative ways in which to develop that are as efficacious or more efficacious for those countries over the long term. But certainly, China's contribution generally to public goods, which global development is, should be welcomed. The world is in dire need of money and is in dire need of development and the global international institutions don't have a fraction of the budgetary resources that really are needed to continue this bringing of people out of poverty and continue the uh, uh, raising of living standards globally.
1: Okay, we have time for one more question. Who, and I'm gonna say this because this is the last question, who has a question on this side of the room that they believe simply has to be asked <laughs> to give a full- the three
2: of them over here. Category. You got three
1: <laughs> of them, you got kids. All right, you guys, uh, arm wrestle or something. All right. thank you. Tell us who you are. Uh,
3: My name is Sardor. I'm from Uzbekistan. I'm a Ramzil fellow, and we are running the e-commerce platform in Silk Road countries. My question is, uh, we talked about a lot trade, and now trade is transforming to the e-commerce and electronic trade. My question will be like this. The U.S. uh, market size on the e-commerce is uh, 600 billion market and making more than 11% of the trade is already online. But if you take it uh, China, it's uh, almost two trillion and making 17% of the trade making online like a big players uh, Alibaba and here is Amazon. Uh, and China is now on the leadership. My question is to the panelists, uh, does the US has a clear strategy to back the leadership on e-commerce? Thank you.
1: Who would like to well
0: uh, we're right in the middle of the e-commerce revolution I mean we move about 15 million shipments a day every day 220 countries so we have, have a granular view of it as it applies to China first thing you got to remember about China is when they started moving towards uh, a consumer economy which they had never been they didn't have the retailing infrastructure that we historically have in the United States. So with the growth of mobile telephony, which was really the accelerant for e-commerce, if you look at Amazon's growth is like this, and then boom, as soon as mobile telephony, because now you you've got an order entry device in your pocket. So China went very fast to mobile telephony. Secondarily they had armies of unemployed people coming in from from the uh, from the rural parts of the of the country and and so they adopted it to a much greater extent than we did in this country because we have high wages for the delivery aspect of the thing and we have the retailing infrastructure 4700 Walmart stores 1800 target stores I could go on and on so I think at the end of the day the the e-commerce revolution is going to continue but where it's probably has the most impact for the subjects we're talking about. It allows small companies, any place in the world, to access the entire global market. We have a shipper in Jamaica who makes this hot sauce that will just lift the hair off of your (laughs) head. Guess who his biggest customers are? They're the Chinese. I mean, FedEx picks up in Jamaica and they move these things into... Sichuan and Beijing and Tencent and one thing or another (laughs) we have a custom watchmaker in Colombia way up in the mountains of Colombia make these beautiful wooden customized watches they sell them by the thousands OtterBox you probably don't know who OtterBox is they make the little rubber thing that your cell phone goes on here in Colorado Springs California they sell OtterBoxes in Russia and China and Dubai one thing or another so I think the democratization of trade and the ability of small companies to participate in trade because of the Internet is going to be where the real uh, opportunity comes. And where it may even be bigger than China is Africa because Africa, by the end of this century, will have one out of three people on the planet living on that continent. So it should not surprise you that one of FedEx's biggest initiatives is to Expands FedEx throughout Africa, because when you unleash that type of entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem, you've got the real possibility to lift a lot of people out of poverty that may have been uh, not available to access the 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 manufacturing the heavier industry type of of uh, growth that China and the four Tigers before that had so I think that's where e-commerce is headed more than
1: anything else. All right, well on behalf of TCU and CSIS, thank you
0: very much for coming.